Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6 this evening. We find ourselves sort of now in the middle of Moses' second of a series of sermons there on the border of the promised land with the children of Israel before he dies and goes to be with the Lord and Joshua takes over. He's giving a series of reminders, reiterating truths of God to the next generation to prepare them to enter into the promised land. And now as we come to chapter 6, he continues with this sermon here that he has been giving. He's just reiterated the Ten Commandments, talking about the importance of obedience, a constant and continuous theme throughout all of these different messages that Moses gives in the book of Deuteronomy. And again, we see this going on once again. Chapter 6, verse 1, Moses says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land in which you are crossing over to possess. So again, reminding them that he was doing nothing other than passing on to them what he was receiving from the Lord. He says these judgments, these commandments, these statutes, he says these are the things, he says, which I have been commanded to teach you in order that you might observe these things, experience God's best and God's highest ideal, somewhat like how Paul the Apostle says in the New Testament, writing to the Corinthians, that which I've received from the Lord, I deliver unto you. And here now Moses is just indicating what God has given to me. It's to teach you, to help you, to observe the statutes and commands of God as you're about to cross over to possess the land that he has given to you. Verse 2, he begins to speak more of the reasons why. He says again, that you may fear the Lord your God, that is have a reverence for God's authority in your life, the awesomeness of God, that there would be a sense of respect and uh, reverence for who God is, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command, notice, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life. So again, lifelong obedience, multiple generations, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, he says, verse 3, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be, notice, here's God's reasoning for these things, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, a reference to this land. We see this phrase. It's come up a few times now, all the way back from the prior books here that we've studied together, that this land often referred to descriptively by God as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when God uses that terminology, the, the purpose behind it is simply just uh, by way of somewhat symbolism, adjective to describe the land, a land flowing with milk. Again, milk typically would be received by, you know, there are different animals that would produce the milk. And the idea of not that the land itself would somehow milk, but the idea is that it was good grazing land. It was a fertile land with adequate water supply, adequate grasslands, and everything that would be needed for their herds, their different types of you know, animals, their flocks and herds, that they would be healthy and abundant, and therefore they would be able to produce in abundance milk for them. And milk was a staple. It was a staple for 
for their diet. It was necessary for you know, their survival. It was one of their staple foods. And also, notice, not only would there be milk to sustain them and to strengthen them, but he also says it would be a land of honey. Now, when you read the word honey there in the Bible, don't get in your mind the idea of honey like bees honey. This is referring more to the, the nectar of fruits or probably particularly uh, to the, the date honey or the honey or nectar that would come from the date in that land. And that wasn't so much a staple or something that would sustain and strengthen them as much as it really was somewhat of a delicacy. Uh, this was something that would provide enjoyment. Again, it was something sweet, like we use honey as a, a sweetener. It's something to enhance the flavor of things and something to cause enjoyment uh, to our palate as we taste it. So God, again, here, look, he says, I'm bringing you into this land. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is saying this land that I'm bringing you into, it will be something that's going to sustain you. And, and give you strength. But not only that, God says, but it's also something for you to enjoy. It's something to bring pleasure to you, something that will bring not just what's necessary to sustain you, but it will be satisfactory and it will be something that's satisfying, something that will bring pleasure and enjoyment as well. Again, as God was bringing them into the land, it's so beautiful to see how, how God desires to do both. God desires to meet needs, yes, and he's a God who meets all of our needs, but he's also a God that wants to bring enjoyment into our lives. Uh, and he doesn't want us just to endure life, but there are ways and times and seasons where God wants to bring pleasure and enjoyment and uh, not only just the milk, but also the honey, if you would. And again, as we talked about before, how that land that they inherited physically for Israel, their promised the land, you and I, our inheritance is heavenly. We inherit the kingdom of God, but in a sense, the land, the promised land is a picture from an Old Testament perspective of the promised life in the spirit. Uh, and the spiritual life, yeah, there are aspects of the spiritual life where God sustains us and gives us the strength and what we need to live out the spiritual life. But the spiritual life is also to be something that is to be enjoyable. That's to be pleasurable. Do you ever notice how sometimes uh, non-Christian people, as they think about the life of the believer, and maybe they talk to you, they, they almost look at Christians sometimes, and there's this concept or idea of, you know, that must be such a boring, like just, you know, like their picture and perspective of what it means to live a holy life is like, you know, somebody who sucked on a lemon, you know, or who's just, you know, skin and bones and skeleton and just, uh, you know, this miserable, and what a drudgery. And the reality is, you know, how, what do you people do for fun and enjoyment when the reality is, is their concept of God is is so wrong you know there are so many wonderful pleasures and enjoyable aspects of being able to walk with the lord you know first thing being that you don't have a miserable life you're not caught up in a bunch of stupid stuff that leads to scars and regrets and pain and problems and you know all the things that happen when you live outside of the ways of the lord and you make poor choices that bring painful consequences and circumstances and repercussions and i mean that in and of itself my life is way more enjoyable now than it was the first you know 17 almost 18 years before i was walking with the lord because the, you know the, the the measure of guilt that was once there is not there you know the, the many ways in which we are such self-destructive self-harming people because we say things and do things and get involved in things and have habits we're participating in that just cause problems and pain not just personally but you know in our relationships and difficulties and so much of that is alleviated when we obey the lord
when we serve the Lord and we walk with him, not to mention that he's just a good God and like a father that wants to bless their child with enjoyment and bring happiness into their life to the extent that they can, certainly God wants to do the same. Uh, and he wants the, the spiritual life to have an element of enjoyment, of happiness, of joy. How many times you read of joy and rejoicing of the blessings of the life of God that he has for us in the spirit. So again, God's speaking to them of this land. And, and as he describes this land to them, notice before we go on here as well in verse 2 and 3, he says, these things, he says, are for you and your, verse 2, son and your grandson, that you may prolong your time in the land, he says, that you would, verse 3, observe these things. Again, why? That it may be well with you and that you might multiply. Again, the idea, you can sense the heart of God. God wanted them to experience stability. He wanted them to experience blessing and prosperity and the absolute best. God says, the reason I'm giving you these boundaries morally and spiritually, the reason I give you these commands and statutes to observe is not to lay a bunch of rules and regulations on you or not to make your life burdensome and miserable. The Bible says the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. They're not. Uh, they're intended to bring blessing that our life would be well that our life would go well. And we, when we have a proper understanding, that's the thing that we realize. And again, God's speaking to this, to the nation of Israel. And he's describing here how the nation's stability and the nation's continued prosperity would be based upon generation after generation staying obedient to God and to his word, revering God, obeying God, following the statutes and commands of God. To, to the measure that generation after generation, again, notice, you, your son, your grandson, God is saying to the nation, as each generation continues to revere me, to be a God-centered people, to acknowledge the word of God and the ways of God, he says, to that extent, it will go well with the nation. The nation will prosper the nation will flourish. The Bible says that, that sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And on a national level, this was true for Israel. And I'll tell you this, lay the same parallel. Many of times you often can. When you look at the nation of Israel, there are so many parallels we can draw for our own nation. And when we realize that God says, look, this is the source of stability and success for a nation. When each generation chooses to acknowledge God, to obey his word and obey his will. And, and as generations move away from that, then the cycle begins to unfold in a downward spiral and we become more vulnerable. We curse ourselves. We begin to bring problems in many different ways, militarily, morally, you know, circumstantially, economically, and it happened to Israel. And many times we can see the very same type of things happening to our own nation. So again, God's challenging them here through Moses to obedience, each generation taking that responsibility. Verse 4 and 5 now, sort of the pinnacle verses of this chapter, and really the pinnacle verses for the Jews. Verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your strength. Now, this here, verse 4 and 5, is often called the great Shema or the great Shema, however you want to pronounce that. I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar. Many of you have heard this before. But to the Jew, this is sort of a, a pinnacle text or the pinnacle set of verses for the Jew, especially for the Orthodox Jew. Uh, that word Shema or the great Shema comes from the first word there in verse 4 here. That's the, the Hebrew term there. And this set of statements, this really acknowledgement of God's existence and then this commitment to devotion to God described in verse 5, uh, this really is a, a very pivotal phrase for the Jews that they have come to just really hold on to as an anchor and a foundation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first thing that a Jewish child would learn. Typically, this was one of the first things that they would commit to memory. It is the first thing to this day still that many faithful Orthodox Jews will state each and every day in devotion to the Lord. And many times will state throughout the day that Orthodox Jew will faithfully sometimes pray this multiple times a day. Again, it's a, a declaration of God's existence. This is sort of their confession of faith that here... O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, coming from a territory where people were polytheistic, they had many different gods. They had a god of the mountain, they had a god of the valleys, they had a god of the water, a god of the rivers, I mean, a god of fertility, and, and yet they were a people who had one god. They weren't a polytheistic people. They knew the one true and living God who revealed himself to them. So again, the Lord, there's that term again. It's, it should be all capitals in your Bible. We've talked about it before, the capital L. O-R-D, that's that, that uh, Hebrew tetragrammaton as we call it, the Y-H-W-H, it's the inevitable name of God. The idea is this name that's in, unpronounceable. Uh, some say it's Yahweh, some say Jehovah. We don't really know. We have the consonants Y-H-W-H, uh, but we don't know. The idea is the name of God being so great, so awesome that the pronunciation of it has been lost or uh, is unable to be known because of the greatness and the mystery of who God himself is. But this is who their God was. He was Yahweh or Jehovah the Lord, our God. Now, the word God there that's used, uh, interesting, is the same term, the Hebrew term that's used all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as the Bible starts. And it's the Hebrew term Elohim. Uh, and again, indicating plurality, the word or term El, E-L, is the term for God in the Hebrew. And whenever you attach H-I-M at the end of something, you add plurality. So Elohim is God in the plural sense. For example, you know, when we talk about angelic beings in the Bible, we have what are called cherubs, or you read cherubim, cherubim, or seraph and seraphim. A, a cherub would be a single angel. A cherub, when you read cherubim, that the I am, and that's adding the plurality to it, saying that there is more than one cherub, more than one that type of angelic being. So when you have the term Elohim, basically that term is God in the masculine plural, 
Uh, and, and what it's trying to indicate is the idea there is God as more than one, yet still one. So he says, the Lord, Yahweh, is Elohim, more than one, yet Yahweh is one. He's more than one, yet he's one. So we begin to see here already this essence beginning to show up in the Old Testament of the idea of the Trinity and a Trinitarian God, a God who is one God manifested in three persons. In fact, when he uses the term, the Lord, our Elohim, the Lord is one, that word one there is interesting as well because there are multiple terms that could have been used there for the word one from the Hebrew. There is a Hebrew term that speaks of one exclusively in an indivisible and singularity form. And then there is this term, akkad, which the Holy Spirit prompts Moses to use here, which speaks of compound unity. The idea is a term speaking of unity of multiple things being combined as one. So the term here is the same term that was used again in Genesis 2 talking about the marriage relationship. Remember in Genesis 2 when it's describing marriage and it says of a husband and a wife, it says the two shall become what? One flesh. The idea there and the Hebrew literally there is the same. The two shall become, it says, Achad flesh, one flesh, a compound unity. Now, when you have a marriage relationship, what do you have? You have two separate people. You have two separate people with different functions and, and there are two individuals, but yet their, their life is merged and they share one life. There's a, there's a compound unity there, same term. That's the term that we find here when we read the Lord our God, the Lord Elohim, the Lord is one. He's one, but he's a compound unity. Again, pointing to us this reality of that we have a God that is singular, only one God, but yet he is a compound unity in his person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the idea of a triune God. Remember, even in the book of Genesis, we begin to see the indications of the Trinity, which the Bible teaches. And again, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. And people will say that. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, that's true. But the Trinitarian truth of the triune God that we have one God manifested in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is from Genesis to Revelation. Again, in the first chapter of the Bible, not only does it say God Elohim created the heavens and the earth, but then in the same chapter, you get down to verse 26 and 27, and you begin to read, and it says that God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness, plurality. Let us, who's he talking to? Make man in our image and in our likeness. Some people say, oh, God's talking about the angels there. He was talking to the angels. No, he wasn't, because then the next verse says, so, so man was created in the image of God. He created him. We weren't created in the image of angels. The Bible says clearly we're created in the image of God. So what do you have? You have a conversation happening among the Godhead among the Father and the Son and the Spirit in some way. So, again, we begin to see these inferences all the way from the Old Testament of this Trinitarian truth of God taught throughout the Bible. One God manifested, yes, in three distinct persons. 
in their function and their role. That's why Jesus would make declarations that would drive the religious leaders through the roof when he would say things like, the Father and I are one. And again, this marvelous mystery of the Trinity, we, our brains just can't quite scratch the surface. It's a truth that is taught. We accept it by faith, but I don't think we'll ever fully delve a full comprehension of it until we're in the presence of God. But we believe by faith what the Bible teaches of our God, this marvelous mystery of one God manifested in three persons. So this confession of faith of his existence, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say, verse five, as a part of this great Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So again, this concept of because of how awesome God is, how incredible he is, our response to his existence and to who he is, is our devotion towards him. That the Jew was called to love God, basically, the idea there, with their entire being. With all your heart. Again, it's not speaking of the muscle behind your chest that pumps blood through your you know, veins and arteries and so forth. It's speaking of the, the core of your being, the center of who you are. That's why he says in Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all diligence. Again, he's not talking about keeping your heart healthy physically, but the, the core of your being. The heart is a reference to the very center of who you are. The deepest part of you, your spirit, the part of you which is eternal and lasting. So he says, love the Lord with your heart. Notice, with your soul. That could speak of the mind, the consciousness, your will, your emotions. And then notice even your physical strength. All that you have, your body. So again, the Bible is, is saying here that we are to love God with everything. With all of our being, we're to use our body to love God, our strength, our energy. We're to offer God our body in our worship, in our service to him and say, Lord, how can I love you with my physical body? What can I do to show love for you and, and demonstrate love towards you with my physical frame? Whether that's the posture of my body or how I use my energy or my strength or my time and what I do with this physical frame that God's given to me. With my soul, my mind, my conscience, those things should be used. You should use your mind to love God. You shouldn't check your mind. When you read your Bible, you should love God with your mind. Use your mind to show God love and to love God by giving God your mind with your spirit, with your heart, with your emotions. Love God with everything. The idea is here. So this great statement, again, memorized at a young age, recited, reiterated every day by them. It was a pinnacle set of verses here that the Jews would learn. It was very, very important to them. And of course, these are verses that Jesus refers to when, remember, they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And you remember Jesus' answers to that. You shall love the Lord your God, he says, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds to it, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so even Jesus esteems the beautiful summarization of this confession of faith and then commitment of loving God with all of our being. He then goes on, verse 6, saying, And these words, again, the commands of God, these words which I command you today, Moses says, shall be, I love what the Bible uses it there, in your heart. Again, not in your head. Again, it's not to say that we shouldn't love God with our mind, but again, this always reminds me when I read statements like this, of like Psalm 119, where it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Again, in the center of our being, that God's word is to be assimilated, not just into our mind, into our, our mental capacity. Yes, I understand that. But the word of God is to be assimilated into our being much deeper. It's often been said before, the longest journey is that 18 inches, what, from our head to our heart. And isn't that always such a challenge? You know, that was the problem with the religious leaders in many ways. I mean, these were individuals, keep in mind, we think we may know our Bible well sometimes. These are individuals who knew, you know, massive portions of what we call the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. They could recite chapters and chapters. These didn't committed to memory. Jesus in John 5 says to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but you fail to see these are the very things that testify of me but yet you won't come to me that you may have life. Again, their mind was engaged. They knew a lot of information, but it had never become impartation into their being. You know, I want to challenge you. Let the word of God, the commands of scripture, the truths and the promises of God's word. Yes, let them pass through your mind, but let them get down into your heart into the core of your being, into the fiber work of who you are, where they rule over your heart. And that command of God is not just an intellectual idea or some theoretical concept, but it is something that rules over your heart, the deepest part of your being, that regulates your desires, that rules over your passions and what you will do, what you won't do. Let it be deep within your heart. Hide God's word in your heart, the Bible says, and it will keep you from sinning against him. Verse 7, he then gives instruction in regards to how they are to take God's word and spiritual truth and they are to convey it to their children, to transmit it again. If it's going to go to the next generation, children and grandchildren, he says, verse 7, you shall teach them, that is the words and commands of God, diligently, I have that circled in my Bible because that speaks of a process of effort, diligence. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So here we see this command here that it's the primary responsibility that spiritual learning for children happen, notice, from the parents to the children directly. There's no mention here of educating the, the children spiritually through Sabbath school, through bringing them to synagogue, uh, you know, through sending them to uh, you know, Jewish schools. You know, I'm not saying any of those things in and of themselves are wrong. They can be addendums. I think these can be supplemental things. Same way for us today as Christians, you know, you know, Christian school is great. Christian education, you know, bringing our kids to church, having them in the house of the Lord, being in Sunday school classes, their stories and biblical truths and scripture verses being taught by others in the body of Christ who are doing lessons for kids at their age level. The, these are all great things, but the primary responsibility that God puts upon the family is for the parents to take the primary role and parents having the primary accountability for educating their children spiritually. Again, and that's what's being described here. It's not educating them, period. It's educating them. This is about spiritual education. Them coming to know God, 
coming to know the word of God, the commands of God, the ways of God, God's will. He says, you parents, he says, shall teach them diligently to your children. Every parent has a ministry. If you are a parent, you are in the ministry. If you're a grandparent, there's a part of being in the ministry to help supplement perhaps even what you know the parents are doing. We read earlier in the chapters that he said that, that we were to teach children and grandchildren. But here, notice, you get this idea in verse 7 that there's to be intentional instruction, teaching them diligently, and there's also to be sort of informal and regular learning just through conversations and answering questions and sort of everyday activities you go throughout the course of the day. I think the first part of the verse speaks uh, of that intentional instruction, that, that we are in some ways as parents to be intentional about instructing our kids. He says, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. Again, diligence implies effort. It implies a labor. It implies putting work into it. Uh, And the Bible speaks of how we are to indeed as parents be intentional. It's our job to find ways to teach them. We should have some intentional way of doing that, whether that's you know trying to you know provide some time of a, maybe a family devotion here or there, and I've talked about before. And let me just say again for the you know, sake of, of being repetitive, you know, th- this can be done in many different ways. I encourage you, be creative, be flexible. You know, we over the years learned, Trisha and I, how to kind of ebb and flow and, and adjust with this and try and find that balance where we didn't make our kids miserable, where they would despise the things of God and feel like that, you know, we were, you know, putting them under this bondage of, of having to go through, you know, you know sit down and we're going to, you know, lecture them for 45 minutes, just, you know, pouring Bible verses down their throat to where we, we tried to find a balance to do this at different stages and in different ways. There were times where, yeah, we would do a family devotional thing, sit together in a living room and read a passage and talk about it. And, and, and what we tried to be sensitive to is what season of life we were in and where they were at. And there were times that we did that. There were times where for a season when I drove the girls to school, that as I was, I was driving them to school in the morning, we did a, a thing driving Devo time. And when we hit a certain point, it was about a 20 minute drive to school. We were about halfway there. We'd pass a certain house. And when we'd pass that certain house, I would say driving Devo time. And I'd take the next 10 minutes. And I would just share what I read in my morning devotions. In a sense, kind of like the mama bird, you know, eats its food and vomits it back up and puts it in the little birdie's mouth. And that was sort of what happened. And I just regurgitated maybe something that I read that morning and used it for spiritual dialogue and, you know, conveyed some of those things. But I tried to do it intentionally as we drove to school five days a week and tried to be intentional about taking that time to invest in them the things of God. To this, you know, they still, as they were in, in their high school years now, have one in, in college now, but when they were in their junior high, high school years, th- then I started writing uh, something every day and, and as Trish would pack their lunch in the morning, they would get a little devotional written out. I would write something and she'd put it in their lunch boxes. So when they ate their lunch that day or went in their lunch box for their first snack, there was a little spiritual food there. There was a verse with a little bit of description. Again, it wasn't some deep theological thing. It was just something simple of me as their father saying, this is what this verse says and just finding a simple way from my heart to convey to them spiritual truth. Now I do the same thing via text because I got a daughter away at college. So now I I do the same thing. Only at night I write a devotion in the evening and in the morning I copy and paste it. I send it to 
my wife. I send it to the three kids. And again, I just encourage you, be intentional about it. Be intentional. Find a way that works, that's simple, that works for you. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to share something deep. You know, but just share something. There is that responsibility to do what you can to explain to them what it means to have a relationship with God, to teach them, again, diligently. The idea of you know, training, it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. But notice, there's one aspect of being intentional but I think that's not something that we should overly get caught up in and fail to realize. Look what he says, verse 7, and talk of these things, he says, when you look. Look what it says. Sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. The idea there is just in informal ways, there should just be regular, continuous, ongoing spiritual learning because we want to teach our kids that our life is about God. So maybe it's through a question that's asked and you get asked a question. Why that? You know, why can't I do this? Or, you know, why didn't we do that? Or why are we going to do this? Or what, you know, why do we go to church on Wednesday nights? I got that more than once over the years. This is why. It's not because I'm the pastor. If I was a plumber, we would live the exact same way because I'm a Christian. These are my convictions. This is who I am in the Lord. This is who me and your mother are as a family. And, and so th- that's why we have these rules. That's why these moral standards exist in our home. That's why we won't watch this or you can't listen to that at this age or you know whatever. But th- these were opportunities when questions are asked to just talk. It didn't always have to be about a teaching lesson. Answer questions. When they have questions, you know what? Answer their questions scripturally. Now, I'm going to, for, for the risk of, you know, uh, hopefully this won't, won't seem odd here, but this is a literal experience I just want to share with you. I remember at one point in time, when the, and the girls were very young, one of our girls uh, asked, because she began to think it was odd, and she almost thought that maybe, you know, mom's, well, that's weird. How come mommy can see you when you get dressed? That's weird. That's gross. Ew, that's weird. And And, and there began to be this, curiosity and it began to be a repetitious thing we're almost like starting to get a little first like look stop asking that you know well that's weird we don't see you when you get dressed why did how come mommy walks how come mommy walks in when you get that's weird and i was like lord you got to give me a way to resolve this other than stop saying that before i beat you you know i mean it's like (laughs) certain things are parents like it was just general it was natural curiosity do you want to know how i finally resolved that i sat this particular daughter down I said, I want to show you something in the Bible. I turned to Genesis chapter 2, and I said, read that right there. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. And I said, that's why. Because God said that if it's your husband or your wife, it's allowed. Do you know what I got? Oh, okay. Never got brought up again. Never again. But again, informally, talking around the dinner table, when questions are asked, when situations happen, they have a struggle at school, they're dealing with something. Look, don't miss, parents, I want to encourage, don't miss the opportunity to use these as learning opportunities. 
to give them scriptural understanding. Look, you're having this problem with your friends? Well, this is how the Bible says to handle that. Or just to speak to them. Look, if it were me, this, and I believe this is how God would have us to handle this as a Christian as compared to the way the other kids handle it in school. But look for these opportunities. Again, when you're sitting down, rising up, walking around, driving in the car, talk about the things of God. Just look for opportunities. You don't always have to force it, but the idea is use those opportunities, take advantage of those things, because then God is a part of your life. He's a part of everything, and that's what we want to teach our kids anyway, not that we just go to church on Sundays and we go to church on Wednesdays and that's God time. No, our life is about God. We serve God in everything, every area of our life all the time. So look for that. Answer their questions. Start conversations. Make it informal. Yes, there are times it's intentional, but also don't pass up those informal education opportunities spiritually to talk about God and his ways. Use the scriptures to address situations as they're growing up. It'll be a great and wonderful thing. And it'll pay off. And you'll see it. And you'll begin to teach kids that the way to find answers and to resolve things is by looking to God and looking to the Scripture. So verse 8, he then says as well, you shall bind those things as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So uh, here, God also, again, look, he wants the word of God, the idea is to be the most influential thing in their lives, to be the most influential thing in their family. You can see it weaved all through this. Now he tells them to take the commands to bind them as a sign or symbol on their hand and on the frontlets between their eyes, that is on their foreheads. This is where the idea, if you've heard the term phylacteries, if you've ever been in Israel, seen pictures of Jews, or been around an Orthodox Jew, and you realize with little leather straps, they have a little box maybe on their wrist, or a little box that they put on, and, and they wear it, there's like a little box in front of their forehead, and, and what those actually are, they take this very literally. And so this passage, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage, and other, they put actual scripture verses, and they take this literally. And they put them in phylacteries and they put them on their head and they put them on their... And again, it's a symbolic way of reminder. You know, they use this as an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty to the word of God. Remember, again, and Jesus didn't condemn the practice of phylacteries, but he mentions it in Matthew chapter 23, remember. And what does he mention? He mentions that people are making their phylacteries big, large. Why? Because they were trying to look spiritual. So they started out with just these little boxes and little symbolic reminders when they would maybe go to spend time in prayer. They would bind the word of God to their forehead. The idea is meditating upon the word. But then it began to be something where I looked over there and I thought, well, if I make my phylactery a little bit bigger than George's phylactery, then people will know I got more Bible verses memorized than he does because I got 12 in my box. And all of a sudden, you know, people they're walking around, they got UPS boxes on their foreheads, you know, just keep their head up, you know, because and Jesus said, stop that. Don't do that. You're, you're misconstruing the old idea there. Again, the, the whole picture here, again, is binding the word of God, you know, on your hand, you're, you know, on your, between your eyes, writing it on your doorpost. This is where the mezuzah comes from as well. If you've ever seen the mezuzah, they, you know, put the pieces of scripture the Jews will on their doorposts and on their gates. Uh, you may see these type of things. But again, I think nothing wrong with doing these things literally, but the heart behind it, again, is what God was after. 
that the word of God would be central in our lives and it would be the most influential thing in your life personally and in your family, in your household. That it would be before your eyes, that is, it would be on your mind, it would be the central thing where you process your focus and your you look at everything through the word of God. That you would process your decisions that way, you'd think about things that way, that it would govern what you did with your hands, what your hands got involved in and what your hands would stay out of. And it would be on the doorposts, it would be evident as you went in and out of your house, a reminder, hey, what we do in this house, the standard is the scripture. The standard is not what are the neighbors doing next door. The standard is not what do you like to do because you're 13 and have a lot of opinions right now. The standard is the scripture. And that will be what governs our lives and governs our home. And I think this is a beautiful thing. I, you know, I love my wife is, you know, great about putting, you know, scriptures up around the house, writing different ones. And it's just a beautiful thing, you know, to have those reminders before us at different times in our lives. And here God gave this to them. Verse 10, he says, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities, notice, which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. He says, when, notice, when all that happens and you inherit all this prosperity, houses you never built yourself, wells that you never dug yourself, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't have to plant but you're taking all the benefits of these things in the land that were just given to you as God's grace poured out by his blessing when you've eaten and are full then beware God says lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the household of bondage so what does God do? God says look you're about to experience a time of prosperity you're about to enter into the blessing of God this would be a new season for them. They were about to enter into a time when finally, after years of struggle, the blessing was on the horizon. And it was going to be good. And they were going to be experiencing enjoyment and blessing. God was going to prosper them. And it was God that was prospering them. God was going to bless them, give them success and enjoyment and prosperity. And it wasn't wrong. They should welcome it. God, thank you. Thank you. The promise has finally come to pass. But God says, when it does, don't get so caught up in the enjoyment of it that you cast me aside and forget who brought it into your life. And see, God gives them this warning here because God understands for some of us, prosperity is a dangerous thing. And sometimes it is harder to be faithful to God in prosperous seasons of blessing and success than it is when things are hard. Because when things are hard, what we're, grip, we're gripping on to God for everything we can. But sometimes it's harder to serve God in times of blessing and prosperity. Nothing wrong with it. But God warns, beware, he says, when you're eaten and fooled that you don't set aside God and forget who brought that blessing into your life and you don't stay committed and faithful to him through the season of blessing as well. Interesting, when you've eaten and are full, he says, don't forget God. To this day, that's why some Jews still, they actually pray after they eat. They take this literally, when you've eaten and are full. We often pray before our meal. A lot of times they'll pray after they eat because they want to take this literally. I don't want to eat a good meal and be full and forget, wow, Lord, you provided that good meal. So what an interesting thing, you know? You want to really mess up your friends the next time you invite them over for dinner? 
Invite your Christian friends over who didn't come Wednesday night. Don't pray before the meal. They'll think you're a pagan. You're backslidden the whole time. And then at the end of the meal, say grace. You really mess them up and say, if you would have came Wednesday, you'd know I'm biblical. Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. Good stuff there. See that? Free information for Wednesday nights. Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. So again, what's God saying? Don't embrace the culture because the culture they were entering into was going to be very influential with all types of other things, idolatrous avenues that they could go down. And God says, look, when you come into that place, don't let yourself get contaminated by the world. Paul tells us in the New Testament not to be conformed to the pattern of the world but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Again, letting God's word renew our mind so that we don't think the way the world thinks because we're exposed and indoctrinated constantly. So he says, no, fear God, serve him, take oaths in his name, but don't you go after other gods, the gods of the people of the land all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Verse 16, he says, and you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. So a caution not to tempt God. Again, interesting, Massa, remember Exodus 17 was when the people did not have water and they were thirsty. And because of that, their thirst existed. But what happened? It wasn't immediately met. God didn't immediately meet their thirst and he didn't instantly satisfy their thirst. And what did the people do? They started to complain and they even got somewhat contemptuous and they made this statement, is God among us or not? Is God with us or not? And boy, doesn't that picture quite well how our flesh can get sometimes. A situation arises. We know God knows about it. He hasn't answered the way we want him to. He hasn't answered on the timetable we want him to. And there's a part of us that almost begins to start to question God a little bit. God, are you real or not? Are you with me or not? I prayed about this. And where's the answer? And why isn't it coming? And, and he says, be careful. Don't, don't let your heart go there. Don't tempt God in that way. And they challenged and tempted God in that way. And he says, don't let yourself do that. Interesting, Jesus will ultimately quote this in the midst of the temptation with the devil when he comes to him. Remember, when the devil comes to him and says, if you're really the son of God, turn those stones into bread. In other words, if you're God's son, if you're the beloved son of God, then you should never have to go without you should never have to struggle. Why would the Son of God have any need in his life? You should be able to have whatever you want, whenever you want it, just command it to happen, make it come to pass. And in essence, he was trying to tempt him to basically take matters into his own hands, to be self-satisfying, self-gratifying, to manipulate things. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God but to serve him only. So Jesus quotes this very statement from Deuteronomy 
even when he is tempted. Verse 17, And you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God as testimonies and statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you. Again, notice the reiteration, just like we're reading, same statements again, that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. Verse 20, And when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We are we're slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, the deliverance. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And then he brought us out there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Notice again, look at the statements, for our good always. Why does God want you to obey and me to obey and them to obey? For our good, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And then it will be righteousness for us. Now, not saving righteousness. We know that's not scriptural. But the idea is that we'll live right. It will be a right way to live. Righteousness for us nationally as families if we are careful to observe all these commands before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So take note of two things here before we wrap up. First of all, he's mentioning verse 20 down through verse 25 here of how there will be times, again, back to this way of ministering truth, transmitting truth to our children. He says, there's going to be times when your children are going to ask questions. And he says, when your children ask you in time to come, what's the meaning of these things? They're inquisitive about spiritual things. And you know what? Kids are going to do that. They're going to ask when they're six. They're going to ask when they're 12, when they're 16, maybe when they're 22 or 25. And and God's saying, look, don't miss those opportunities. When you're asked spiritual questions, don't get angry at your kids that they're asking spiritual questions. Be glad at least they're asking, right? (laughs) Better that they ask and they shrink back apathetically and get a cold heart and not even care. If they're asking, it shows they're at least thinking. So don't get mad when they ask capitalize on those opportunities whether they're three and they're asking a goofy little question answer it if they're 13 and they're asking questions because they're trying to process the faith for themselves and their conscience answer their questions and look he says you don't have to be a theologian what does he tell them to do he says just tell them about your own spiritual experience how the exodus happened what god did for you how he delivered you out and took you from bondage and brought you out of that land to bring you into the sand. What's God saying? Just share your own spiritual experience. Listen, there is nothing more powerful that you and I can share with our kids than to just tell them what God's done in your own life. Just tell them what God's doing in your life and what he's done in your life because that's powerful, that's real. Let me tell you how it happened with me. Let me tell you what God did in my life. Because see, that has substance to it. That is reality to it that your kids can grasp and can hold on to. I love that statement in verse 23. I want to leave you with this this evening before we spend time closing out in worship. He says, Then he brought us out from there, from Egypt, that past life, that he might bring us in to give us this land which he swore to our fathers. I love that. God brought us out that he might bring us in. Verse 23. God brought us out that he might bring us in. The idea is God brought them out of an old experience 
of an old season they were once in. He brought them out of something that was old and something that was not good. He brought them out of what was old so that he might bring them in to a new thing, which was the good thing and the right thing. And you know what? That's the testimony of all of us here in this room who are saved this evening. And that just may be what God does at times in your life and maybe is about to do in your life. He brought you out of something that wasn't good. And the reason he brought you out of something that wasn't good is because he's about to bring you into something that really is good. And that's a wonderful thing to know that our God does that. Amen?